change the way we Okay. Um, um, Jeannie just put in a vote for uh, Hemingway when we finished <laughs> Dostoevsky, and actually, I'm all for that. Um, um, we might do a couple of other things too, but I, I thought seriously about doing um, Hemingway's Old Man on the Sea because it's a very short book and it's modern. It will pick up in interesting ways. It will pick up some of the things that Dostoevsky's doing, except there will be nothing explicitly religious about it. It's about an old man going out to sea to fish. Um, but I think it marked a real turning point in his vision. So um, um, I mentioned the works um, that we will look at. I, I don't want to take up time tonight, but those are very much on my mind. So um, if you have any other suggestions, um, let me know. Um, the poem that we're reading tonight, do you know where the, oh God, hold on, do you know where the Hopkins book is, Doc? I'm sorry, the Hopkins book? Mm -hmm. No, I don't. Can you look around the living room? Yes, I am. Or in the bedroom? If you guys want to look at a hard copy of that, just Mike, you taking off? I'm still here for that. Oh, okay. Um, the poem tonight, if you want to, some other time, if you want to take a look at it in class, it's called Carrion Comfort by Hopkins. Remember, I said I was going to stay with him for a while. Um, you know Hopkins is not an easy poem or a poet. Um, very difficult. Um, I'm going to read a couple of poems what, what people usually associate with what's called his dark period as a priest. Um, um, most of his poems are an open celebration of Christ somewhere in nature doing something. These are poems that deal with um, despair and um, dark things within himself. This is after he's a priest, so they're mature. Um, they're the product of um, deep meditations on himself and his own nature in Christ. Um, in this poem called Carrying Comfort, he's, he's dealing with the temptations of despair. And he's looking at despair in the same way that vultures look at carrion. So if you've ever been in the street and watched vultures feeding on carrion, you know that what they're doing is feeding on death. That's what vultures feed on, something that's dead. And Hopkins is aware of that in himself. And the, the poem is really an affirmation of the spirit, the struggle of, of not giving in to despair when something hard hits and knowing that um, that whatever difficulties he faces in dealing with that despair, he's got help from God. So consistently through the poem, he keeps using the word not. I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not. So hear that, um, that the repetition of that word. And the rest of it has to do with the descriptions of God working on him. It's not so much like a, 
I'm a, a potter, an artist working with clay. It's almost like a god working with sinews and a body and a spirit. So this is Hopkins in a poem called Caring Comfort. God, sorry. Caring Comfort. Not, I'll not caring comfort, despair, not feast on thee, not untwist, slack they may be, these last strands of man, in me or most weary, cry, I can no more. I can't go on. I can, can something, hope, wish, day, come, not choose not to be. Remember Hamlet's words, not to be, whether to be or not to be, and he's saying not to choose that. But ah, but oh, thou terrible, why wouldst thou rude on me, thy ring, earth, right font, rock, lay a lion limb against me, scan with darksome, devouring eyes my bruised bones and fan, oh, in turns of tempest, me heap there, me frantic to avoid thee and flee, Remember, he's looking at God um, coming um, on earth, but still infinite with the Father. You know, he returned to him. So God is watching him from that perspective, not ours. Why, that my chaff might fly, my grain lie, sheer and clear. Nay, in all that toil, that coil, since seems I kiss the rod. I think that's an allusion to his taking vows for his... Um, priesthood. I kissed the rod, hand rather, my heart low, lapped strength, stole joy, would laugh, cheer. Cheer whom though? The hero whose heaven handling flung me, foot trod, because it's Christ that flings us down. Um, um, we're glad for all that he gives us. We also know that he asks the love of us that Sometimes feels impossible. He was God, we're not. So it's like wrestling with a wrestler who's going to always beat you. Um, I kissed the rod, hand rather, my heart low, lapped strength, stole joy, would laugh, cheer. Cheer whom, though? The hero whose heaven handling flung me, foot trod me, or me that fought him? Oh, which one? Is it each, me fighting him, him fighting me? Remember, he's on a cross for us. That had to be, is there a struggle to compare with that? He was perfect, we're not. Which one? Is it each? That night, that year of now done darkness, I wretch lay wrestling with my God. My God. The name of it's carrying comfort. If you want to go online and look at it. Okay, this is going to be a tough class. Tough class. Um... I, I want to pick up the reviews that we started last week because I know that there's no way to do justice to this long, long novel. Um, Lit is probably at times when I mute my mic, it happens less. It's a glitch. Lit. I don't know. Reply. Um, oh, Gita had said, is anyone experiencing Bob sounding like he's down a well or in an echo chamber? And uh, I said, sometimes, because it gets glitchy sometimes, but I, if I mute my mic, then um, it happens. Oh, 
Why don't all of you, or here, never mind, I'll do it. Here, all of you, I'll turn you all off. If any of you wants to come in, I'll, I'll mute you for the class. Let me do that, because that might help. If any of you wants to come in, just um, undo the, take off the mute, and put it on audio, and raise your questions, or whatever comments you have. Sorry? Or just unmute it. Just no, don't raise because I may not see it. Just unmute it and speak. Interrupt. Okay? I'm muting you all. There oh, wait. No. Mute everybody. We'll mute. Okay? Not now. Not, I'm yes. not, no, no, yes. I'm not. No. Just no. swallow it. No, not now. God. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, no, no. Um, I want to. I want to raise a. I want to raise a question here, um, and I'll come back to it. We just finished the Dmitri section where he went um, looking for Grushenka, and you know we talked about this last week and went through it. I'm going to come back to that to to try to um, flesh it out a little bit. Um, but I want to pose some questions for you to keep on your mind before we go into that. Um, We've got three crises in the story. Zosimov's, Alyosho, and now Dmitri. And Dmitri's crisis is going to extend in the last part of the novel. So one of the questions that I want to ask going in is, of, of the crises, which one is the most important for the novel and why? Okay. Um, this is a novel that deals with criminals and murderers. The central question for the novel going into the end, um, if you haven't read the end, is who killed Fyodor Dostoevsky? I mean, uh, Fyodor Karamazov. Who killed him? Why? Um, why does it matter? I mean, he's a father, but it, you know, it's the central act of the whole thing. And why does the narrator present things as he does? I just want to put those out. They'll make more sense in a few minutes, but they're absolutely crucial to everything goes on. Okay. Because at the heart of this novel are all these people who are involved with crimes, murders even, and judges. And in most of the cases, a lot of the people who are judging are people. They're common people, just like us. And so often, the judgments that they make are wrong. They're not good. So Dostoevsky's aware of that in the way that he's arranging the novel. Just be aware of that, okay, as we go forward. And I want to quickly go back um, to just pick up some major concerns that we have from the beginning. You remember that Peter the Great lived in the 18th century, 1672-1725. He became so enamored of the um, sophistication and developments of things in the West that he wanted to bring Russia out of the Middle Ages into modernity. So he introduced all these new ideas and so Russia went through this period of quick arbitrary artificial, unreal changes. And um, Dostoevsky's writing at a time when Rush, Russia is still staggering from those changes. Okay, it's, it's reeling with it. Too fast. In the West, those changes came to us gradually. Um, we had a strong philosophy tradition, a religious tradition, a scientific tradition. Those were all a part of our past. That was not so in Russia. So Russia's dealing with radical, violent changes, and it's affecting everybody, okay? Um, you remember the plot. It begins, basically, 
I'm going to skip over things. I'm leaving out a lot. It begins basically with those meetings at the monastery where the men were um, going to meet to talk with Zosima, see him, and see if um, he couldn't help with the struggles between Fyodor, Karamazov, and Dmitri. And during those meetings, we saw that um, um, Fyodor and Dmitri were violent with each other. But the major focus of those meetings was this discussion on an article that Ivan had written about church and state. Now, this is crucial to the whole book, absolutely crucial. You could pass it off because we could forget it. It's young seminarians meeting with priests. At, at issue in that discussion was relationship between church and state. And you remember that Ivan said church and state should not be separated. They should be unified. Because so long as they're separated, um, there will be no way for man to deal with his crimes. Um, if the state arrests him, there's no way it can guarantee that it's going to change his conscience. And his suggestion was the only way to do that is by combining them because if the, the church absorbs the state into its powers, it can affect a man's conscience because a criminal, somebody who's committed a criminal act, um, knows he can be excommunicated, separated from Christ. In some ways he's begging the question a little bit because we know that people can leave Christ, particularly in our world. But that's his argument. Zosimov agrees with him. Both men take the position that until church and state become absolutely unified, but under the power of the church, that the efforts that man makes to try to redeem him, to regenerate him, to answer his instincts towards crimes, will be futile. Um, Zosima blesses Ivan. He says, he agrees with him. He says the one thing he's concerned about is that Ivan um, isn't sure that he, at that point he believes in God. He says, Ivan, if the soul is immortal, man can become virtuous. But if it's not, there's no way for man to become virtuous. That's his argument. Zosima believes in the immortality of the soul. Ivan questions it. Ivan's comment is, if there is no God, and I think this is Dostoevsky, really, if there is no God, man can do anything. There's no reason for him not to do anything he wants, even if it means killing somebody if he wants to benefit from it, say, or he doesn't like a person. So hold on to that idea, church and state, okay? Um, you remember that um, shortly after that, Dmitri and Alyosha met, and in that meeting, Dmitri calls himself an insect, and he says, um, I'm a monster. And Alyosha's comment to him was, we are all Karamazovs. I'm a Karamazov. Um, every one of the brothers is going to say that. So however much they don't like Fyodor, the father, everyone acknowledges that they have that, the worst qualities of the father in them. It's another way of saying every one of them is in sin. They're no different. There's something not good in every human being. Um, if, if I could extrapolate, I'd say every, every one of us, all men, have Fyodor in us. There's something in us not good, given to corruption, doing bad things. Um, and we watch as the men go through these crises. Um, Zosimov has his crises. Remember, he's, um, he, he is going to go into that duel with a soldier. 
and he gets so angry at a servant that he slaps him. And he's so troubled by having done that that it causes him to convert. He goes into the, the um, duel the next morning and lets the other man take the shot, you remember, and throws away his gun. So he has a chance to kill a man, and he doesn't do it. And that's the beginning of a turn in his life where everything he does, he, he wants to become like Christ. Um, let's see. Um, so, um, Zosimov has his crisis, and then Alyosha has his when Zosimov dies. And remember, um, Zosimov is accused by more than a few monks there of being um, um, hypocritical and false. What happened actually, um, I don't want to go into this, but when, um, when the stranger comes to Zosimov, remember the man who killed the woman? Zosimov persuades him to confess and he finally does, and nobody believes him. I want to come back to that in a minute. Um, and he dies, um, and everybody is upset with Zosima because Zosimov encouraged him to confess. So Zosima carries um, bad words spoken against him in, you know, in, into his later life. Um, so Zosima's... Um, crises, Alyosha's crises, and then last week we got to Dimitri's when um, he discovers that Grushenka's um, left to um, be reunited with her lover and he plans to take his life and have this last bash as a way of celebrating. What Give about, you her up. What about Ivan's crisis? It's coming. We're not. Um, some of the great themes of this work, um, these are really important, so just keep these in mind. Um, at the center of this work is this question of um, murdering the father, killing the father. Because at the end of the, at the, end of the novel, it, it seems like it's a universal concern. It, 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 it captures the attention of all Russia. I, I don't want to make anything of this right now, but just to show how important it is. At the center of Freud's work, at the heart of his work, was this belief in the totem image of killing the father, getting rid of the father as a way of claiming our own authority. And it, be, it became one of the central principles of his psychology. So this killing off of the father is not a small thing for a contemporary man. It's a way of getting rid of any authority that asks something of us. Um, so what is the meaning of the, for this book? Why is it so central, the, the killing of the father? Okay. Another theme, the, the trial of the nation. It's a trial of faith. Um, Russia's been rocked by the introduction of these new ideas. It's, it's, um, it's trying to find its identity and it's lost. The role of crime and punishment. Dostoevsky already wrote a book called Crime and Punishment in which he's dealing with the, the tendency in man towards sin and the importance of punishment as a correction. Um, how, do we, how, how do we handle man's sin? You remember the opening argument in the monastery was um, the state would be inadequate. Uh, without the help of the state, the church would be inadequate. It's only when they come together that that man can actually be corrected. And what was at the center of that discussion was how how do you get a man to reform in his conscience? 
because a man can kill, one man can kill another man and go to jail and not do anything with his conscience. Um, we know that there are lots of prisoners who go to jail who say, I was unjustly treated, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do it again. I mean, that's how they come out of prison and they will kill again or do whatever they're going to do again. Um, so there's this inescapable um, conflict between church and state. What can we do here on earth to help man have a better conscience so that he can turn from his crimes and go to God? What, 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 is there anything we can do to help with that? Um, we know that when Dmitri is accosted at the end, when he and Grushenka are, are together and declaring their love, that the investigating um, um, officers come in and begin to question him and actually charge him with the murder of his death. You know that during that period he goes through this awful humiliation. Um, they keep accusing him of things he hasn't done. He keeps confessing things um, that convince them that he's the murderer and they finally tell him to take off his clothes and there's that awful humiliation where he has to present himself naked. I mean he's absolutely humiliated. Um, is, is, is there any way for a state system to do justice to a man when he's committed a crime? Because the tendency of the state is always to treat human beings as if they're things, not as human beings, made in the image of God. I'm going to come back to that in a minute again. The intersection of two times, which has been a major theme for us all along. Um, um, we've said before that in prophetic works like this, the artist takes something up close and extends it to a distance. So we see far things in what's present. Um, there's this um, interaction between two orders of time, between temporal time, earthly time, and eternity. Um, can any of you think of any examples right now? I mean, I've got one in my mind, but I'm wondering, just I want to make sure that we're together on this. Where can anything, can any of you think of any moments when, when um, a transcendent order um, makes itself present and visible here in what's going on here? I have to hit the unmute. Hmm? I have to unmute. I know, if you just have to unmute if you want to answer. I'm, 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 I'm just identifying one of the themes is, is this interaction between the divine order and the human. You know, we, from the very beginning of our literature in Homer, the gods are constantly interacting with men. Except now we're in a modern world, we don't have gods appearing, but there are moments when something from another world intervenes here. Something's happening to show us that what's going on here isn't isolated from another world. It, it immediately involves this other world. Well, I can remember one. I just was hoping, I mean, this is, this is why I want to do this review, because I want to get this out. Um, you remember when um, Alyosha left the monastery in despair and he came back that night and knelt down next to Pacey when Pacey was saying prayers over Zosima's body. And as he began to fall off to sleep, he had this, Pacey was reading from the miracle of Cana. And um, suddenly 
just the, the narrator describes the walls collapsing and suddenly Alyosha is back with Christ at Cana at the wedding feast and Zosima who's dead walks towards him approaches him and and gives him his calling remember I said it's like um, Aeneas's <laughs> like thanks doc it's like Aeneas receiving his calling from Anchises his father and Virgil's Aeneid in the underworld he receives his calling go out into the world and there's an allusion to an olive and you remember the olive came up in a story just preceding that scene when um, um, Alyosha's friend took him to Grushenka to seduce him and Grushenka was going to seduce him but she became when she realized he was suffering she felt bad for him and she told him the story of her own sins and described this story that was really meaningful of this woman who offered an olive, you know, to be pulled out of hell. And so Zosima was not present, but we get Zosima and some allusion to that olive when Alyosha has experienced Zosima in the Cana miracle. So two times, two time orders, two different time orders intersect the miraculous, the gospel something in the gospel comes into the present time and it cures him it heals him um, it reassures him that Zosimo was the holy man that he thought he was and he's received his calling and you know that shortly after that he goes outside throws himself on the ground and kisses the ground and three days later two days later he leaves to enter the world to begin his work um, there's a couple of others I don't want to go into the but this this theme of the interaction of, of the holy, the divine with our world is important for this whole work. Um, I want to read these passages um, just to, to have them firmly in your, mind, in your mind because it's been so long since we've done this work. Um, On 163 and 4, this is the um, chapter 1 <coughs> in book 7. Remember, we've gotten this picture of, of uh, Fairpont dealing with demons all over the monastery. So, to all appearance, this is really good, to all appearances from the outside, the monastery is a holy place. And Fairpont uh, Fair, is finding demons everywhere. But it's here that Zosima speaks these words. Um, um, to those around him, particularly the monks. He says at the bottom of 163, Love one another, fathers. Love God's people, for we are not holier than those in the world because we've come here and shut ourselves within these walls. On the contrary, anyone who comes here by the very fact that he has come already knows himself to be worse than all those who are in the world, worse than all on earth. The longer a monk lives within these walls, the more keenly he must be aware of it. For otherwise, he had no reason to come here. Anybody want to offer a reason for that? Why, when a person would go to a monastic life and enter a holy world, he would become more aware of his sinfulness than if he stayed in the world? Because that's basically what Zosima is saying. Anybody want to take a stab at that? Just your environment. Um, you've got a more pure group of peers. 
More pure? He's saying they're less pure. What? Say it. Say it. Yeah. Anybody else? Um, I, I think that you have more opportunity to be contemplative, and so you might become a little bit more insightful, whereas you don't have necessarily the, the noise of the world going on distracting you from, from yeah, that. And yeah, so yeah. you may become more, mm, as I said, contemplative about your failings. Yep. Seems to me if we're in the world, we're 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 too often. What page are you on? Pre, one sixty three and one sixty four, Marcy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, when when we're preoccupied in the world, we don't look at ourselves very often. We're too much taken up with other things. But if you've been called to holiness and you enter a monastic life, it seems to me there's no way you cannot look at the depths of yourself and finally see the the evil that's in all people more clearly. But he's saying here, if, if you come here and you don't see that you're among the worst of the worst, then you don't belong. Um, so he's saying, love everybody. Uh, but well, when... Wait. Isn't that what makes them pure that they have examined themselves and found themselves sinful? I mean, like, because what if other people don't even notice? Right. Like in the world, what if people don't even notice right. that they're sinful? Right, right, right. Well, this whole concentrating group has examined themselves and all concluded right. that, right. yeah, Right. Yeah, it's a great. It's a great. It's a great paradox. A great paradox. He says, but when he knows that he's not only worse than all those in the world, but is also guilty before all people on behalf of all and for all, for all human sins, the world and each person. Only then will the goal of unity be achieved. Because remember, if they're going to live for Christ, that's what Christ did. So what Zosima is saying is it's absolutely important in order to love that you learn to do it on behalf of all and for all, for all human sin. For you must know, my dear ones, that each of us is undoubtedly guilty on behalf of all and for all. That's Christ again. Um, now, that's 163.64. Turn to 320.321. I just want to gloss these. I don't, I don't want to spend time um, because I really want to get to the Dimitri episode because I think these things throw a light on them. But, but I want to recall these things because these have been important scenes in the past. On 320.21, so that was at the beginning of the Zosimov episode, the section. This is at the end of it when once again he's speaking to the monks, offering the best wisdom he can for what they're going to do going ahead in their lives. And he says, <clears throat> bottom of 320, <clears throat> now remember, um, I'm going to come back to this a little bit with a little bit more detail in a moment. We're heading into a section in which Dimitri is going to be accused of a crime and taken to trial. And a large number of chapters are going to deal with a trial in which he's going to be judged, where lawyers are going to be making cases um, attempting to prove that he's guilty and another one attempting to show that he's not. So a major part of the work is going to deal with an actual courtroom trial and judging, judging another person. So Asimov says here at the bottom of 320, 
Remember especially that you cannot be the judge of anyone, for there can be no judge of a criminal on earth unless the judge knows that he too is a criminal, exactly the same as the one who stands before him. That he's perhaps most guilty of all for the crime of the one standing before him. He's implicated in that crime. When he understands this, then he will be able to judge. So he's saying it's only when you're aware of your own sins and you can stand with the person before you who's in sin and identify with that, you can't make a judgment on that person. However mad that may seem, it's true, for I myself were righteous, perhaps there would be no criminal standing before me now. If you're able to take upon yourself the crime of the criminal who stands before you and whom you are judging in your heart, do so at once and suffer for him yourself and let him go without reproach. And even though the law sets you up as a judge, then to act in this spirit as far as you can. Um, believe it, go down a few lines, believe it without doubt, for in this lies all hope and all the faith of the saints. Okay, now hold on to those um, just as we go forward. Now, just for a quick moment before we turn to Demetrius, who are the criminals? Who are people in the story who've been close to committing a crime, a murder, or and was involved in one that might have gone to a courtroom case, okay? Zosima himself was going to be in a duel in which he was going to kill a man. And you know that he decided not to. He let the guy take the shot. So he's going to murder a man out of honor. Not self-defense, it was a matter of honor. He was going to kill, he was going to take a life away from a person. He knew that and refused to do that. He let the guy take his shot, he threw his gun away. Later, sometime later, you remember that um, a stranger began to appear and talk with him. The man was fascinated with Zosima's story and it becomes clear in time the reason he was fascinated is that he himself killed a woman whom he loved who rejected him. You all remember that, right? And he did all he could to cover it up and the blame got thrown to a peasant um, and everybody was convinced that the peasant killed the woman and the man didn't go to court. He did everything in his life to cover that crime up. You remember that. Covered his tracks, um, gave evidence for the uh, peasant. When you watch Dimitri do everything he does when he's uh, being interrogated, he covers absolutely nothing up. He admits his sin, he admits his fault, he says he wanted to kill him. Um, I mean, he, he's absolutely open about his failings, why he did it, he was going to kill himself. There's nothing he doesn't confess. I'm going to go back and read the exchange with Andre when he's on the way to the tavern that I read last week, and I'll do it briefly here. So you've got, you've got Zosima um, avoiding, going into a duel to kill a man and deciding not to. A man who comes to him and is so taken with Zosima's courage that what it does is begin to touch his conscience, and Zosima encourages him to um, confess and finally the man does, and nobody believes him. If you remember, they thought he was mad, and they thought Zosima was wrong to have encouraged them the way he did. But the man finally reached a point where, he, and he died shortly after that, where he reached a peace because he actually admitted his sin to others. So the, the, this whole theme of committing a crime 
and the importance of confessing it, acknowledging it, and not covering it up goes absolutely to the heart of this book. Um, because re remember the opening scene, how do you deal with a crime if it doesn't affect a person's conscience? So Zosima, the stranger, and there was one other person put in jail before this time that I can remember. Do you remember who that was? You guys better be on here. If I were in school, I'd be given a quiz on this. Who else went? Who else was put in a jail cell? Christ. Who? Christ. Yes, Mark. Go ahead. Christ. What happened? You want? Can you briefly just recall it? Yeah. It's you put him in prison, and I, I can't necessarily remember why, except that basically Jesus was being Jesus. He didn't like that. Right, right. And uh, ended up letting him go. There, there, was a, there was a deal at the end, but basically, you know, didn't want him around. Yep. Let me just. That's all, that's all I can remember. Yeah, no, no, no. Good for you. A couple of things. Remember. The, 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 it's called the Grand Inquisitor story, you remember? Um, and it's Ivan's, Ivan's story of the Inquisition and what, what it, it, it's an allegory showing man's weakness. It's his, indirectly, it's his criticism of the Catholic Church or the Western Church. He associated with Luther, Luther but, he, but the point that he was making is that man has these weaknesses and they're so great that he will sell himself off to an authority so the church will make all the decisions for him, it'll do everything for him, give him his bread, you know, give him authority, tell him what to do, relieve him of his choices, and even make him tempt God. So the three temptations of Christ, remember, prove those three things. Um, that man's too ready to live for bread alone, and Christ says, don't live for bread alone, for, live for the word of God. Um, don't give yourself over to authority, um, um, to take away your own choices and um, don't tempt God. Remember the devil said if you're God throw yourself down. Every one of those things Christ has to take on to show us, us, even before he started, that's the beginning of his ministries, to show the inclination in us, the weakness in us, um, too great a willingness to turn ourselves over to other things um, instead of dealing with Christ. So when Christ comes the Inquisition is taking place. The, 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 the Cardinal just killed a hundred people. Christ appears and he performs a miracle. And everybody's in awe and immediately the Cardinal puts him in jail. And he doesn't plan to let him go, and, um, but in the exchange it's like his heart is moved for a moment and at the end of that scene Christ stands up and he kisses him on the lips and he leaves. And the last description is that the Cardinal would bear that kiss the rest of his life. But Christ is put in jail. He's God. And once again, he's condemned because of men's weaknesses. So there's this tendency on the part of men to judge others wrongly. Um, they did that with Zosimov. 
They did it with a stranger when he finally confessed they wouldn't believe him. They judged the peasant to be guilty when he wasn't guilty. Right? He didn't commit the murder. And here Christ returns and he's put in jail, accused. So long before we ever get to the Dimitri scene, we're given all these scenes in which we see people condemning other people, making judgments, because they're, they're not taking on themselves the sins of others in the way they look at them. And I just want to take a brief second for this. If you remember, that was the central theme of Scarlet Letter. That in that Puritan founding, there was these two, or basically this one group of Puritans who believed they were saved, and anybody who didn't act the way they did was condemned. Remember, Anne Hutchinson left that community early on, and then Hester was condemned. And the great irony of that story, of course, is that their minister <laughs> is the father of that child. He means that the center of that sin. What Hawthorne's doing is, is taking us back to our founding in order to refound it, to correct that self-righteousness, that heresy, really. You know, um, dealing with the way we love, the way we judge, uh, the need for confession. I mean, these are the most important themes here for Dostoevsky. So, so just to briefly, yes, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. It's this whole discussion around uh, freedom of choice. And, you know, the Inquisitor was basically arguing with Christ that the big mistake was giving man something he couldn't handle, which was freedom of choice. Yeah. And he was ready to step in and resolve that problem before us. Right. That Christ had given us something that we weren't capable of handling. And that whole concept seems to kind of come up all through some of the literature. That we've done, where it talks about how man struggles with that choice, and is whether he has the ability to actually handle that choice or not. Mm-hmm. It seems to come up in a number of works, but I don't know if you know part of that is what you're alluding to. Yeah, no, no, yeah, right on. Yep. Yeah, I'm glad you put it that way too, because I, I wonder. I don't want to go into it right now, but. The, the, I, you, you bring up another work, but the first work that, come to my, that came to my mind when you said that was um, Murder in the Cathedral. Because um, um, Beckett had to deal with the motives for that choice. You know, whether he was doing it for the right reason or not, whether he had the strength to go through it or whether he was doing it for the wrong reasons. Um, well, it's kind of there in the, in the Boethius work, too. Which one? Sorry? Yeah. That, that whole process of man's freedom of choice versus God's, you know, charter for the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> God, there's. <laughs> I think part, when I was thinking about, you know, trying to get us up to speed and pull some of the central things out of the early part of the book so that we can make more sense of the end of it, because we're going there now and we've been away from it for a long time. I, it's hard for me to read any of this without seeing. I, I know you're going to laugh at this. It's hard for me to read any of this without seeing Boethius everywhere. <laughs> um, well, I mean, really, if you, if I mean, everyone's struggling with evil in this book, with 
crimes and failings. I, we're going to come back to Smerdjikov at some point because we're going to get close to something demonic as, as we move along. But, but when, you, when you think about all the struggles that people have gone through and the crimes they've committed, the wrongs they've done, Zosimov, even Alyosha, I mean, believing his mentor, I mean, he had to feel some sense of betraying him. Dmitri here, and Grushenka, and finally Yvonne. I mean, they, and yet, well, I don't, I don't want to get a hold of ahead of ourselves, but if you look at all of these people, all of them come to ama an amazing good. Some of them have to go through a real suffering. Dmitri's going to have to suffer for a long time. And I, want to, I, don't want to, I don't want to get there now, but that's one of the questions I'm going to ask. Why is so much time devoted to Dmitri and his trial more than Alyosha or Zosimov? Um, why do we enter into so much suffering with him and Yvonne? I'd wait on that. It's just, it's just a way of saying that an amazing good is coming out of a lot of suffering all the way through this book. And it's hard to see that without thinking of Boethius when we're when we're doing it. My, my professor? Yes. You can hear me. I was the inquisitioner for many career criminals. Texas has the Texas Commission of Rehabilitation and they would send me criminals who had just gotten out of prison and I was to psychologically examine them and determine whether they were reliable enough to be helped by Texas Rehabilitation Commission who would train them to work. So whatever I said determined what they were going to do next. And I had to know who could not go back into society and follow our laws. So I tested them for about four hours straight testing. And the first, I'll stop after I tell you this, the first question that I asked a criminal when he came in sat across from me, I said, how many times were you in solitary confinement? You see, if you break the rules in prison, you're sent to solitary confinement. So that was my first question. How many times were you sent there? Okay. If he said no, none. In my mind, I knew he might be able to go back to work in the public. But here's what one said. He said, they put me in solitary confinement when I got there because I told the leader of the prison what I would do and what I would not do. So they put him right there in solitary confinement. And in my mind, I knew I would have to evaluate everything very closely. Because if he couldn't even live in a prison where they tell you exactly what to do, if he couldn't even follow that, how could he be in the public to follow public laws when there was no one to Tell me how to do it. Yeah. Let me, let me, yeah. You're, okay, now I'm with my story. The, 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 your example goes so to the heart of that opening discussion, Marcy, between the men about how to 
um, how to reform a criminal if you don't go to his conscience. I mean, obviously, it's a yes. it's a much greater problem than. Um, that was what I was evaluating. Actually, was what was in his conscience. Yeah. And I trust him to be in the public again. Yeah. Let's go back to the. Um, I want to just quickly recall what we did last week with Dimitri and then come up to the um, interrogation. So just very briefly to hold on to this because it's all, it's all going to play a role in what we're about to look at in the interrogation. Um, you know that the Dimitri section begins with Dimitri going to Samsonov to borrow money. And Samsonov won't give him. Dimitri goes because he knows um, Samsonov is is a wealthy man. He used Grushenka, and he's hoping to play on that to get money out of him. But Samsonov sends him on a wild goose chase. He sends him to this man, tells him he can't, and um, and goes to this man who's drunk. You remember when he comes there? Um, that man who's called um, Lyagavi. Um, wants to purchase some land from old um, Fyodor Karamazov. Dmitri thinks he can give him the deed to the property um, in exchange for money. Um, so, but the man's drunk, he can't, he can't help him, so he runs off. And you remember then he returns to town, he goes to Grushenka, and she asks him to take him to Samsonov again. He does, and then he goes off to see uh, Madame Koklakov, um, Koklakov, Koklakov, I can't get those last accents, Koklakov, asks her for the money and she um, tries to persuade him to, to go to work in the, in the gold mines and invest in them. We've already talked about that, I don't want to go back. Um, when he goes back to Samsonov, he learns that Grushenka just stayed for a moment and she left. And he's told that she's um, gone off to meet with her former lover again, so he f immediately makes arrangements to follow her. And I asked last week, why does Dostoevsky spend so much time dealing with um, Dmitri with these various people when his object is to get to Grushenka? Um, and I, I offered one reason. It seems to me what Dostoevsky's doing constantly with his characters is setting his characters against the social world as a way of um, highlighting, underscoring values. None of those three people that he asks for help gives him help. Every one of them is concerned with their own selves and money. They have no interest in honor, they have no interest in money. And if, if Dmitri is anything, he's a man of honor and he loves Grushenka. They just love money. So all it does is serve to set him against a darker world that in some ways he stands alone. He takes honor seriously, he wants to pay Kratina the money back, he loves Grushenka, he loves her so much in fact that he's planning to throw this bash and then take his life. I also think there's something else going on. Um, um, when he learns that Grushenka is left, he goes to his father's house wondering if she's there. And he goes to the house, there's only two people who have the signal uh, to get into the house you know, it's Merdjikov and Dmitri. He goes to the window and looks in and sees his father, and the description is, 
he, he looked at him in loathing. And when he saw his father, he took from his pocket the pestle, that stone object that he took from the woman's house. And then the, then the narrative breaks. So right at that moment, the window, we see a son we know wants to kill his father. He said that openly in public. And um, he's jealous because um, he thinks Grushenka may be there, so he's a rival. And he also thinks he has the money. And he thinks he knows it's hidden under the, the uh, pillow. And then the scene breaks and we go to Grigory, who just wakes up and sees a, a shadow in the garden and goes after it. It turns out to be Dmitri, and Dmitri um, hits him over the head and wounds him and flees. And it's then that he takes off. So hold on this, because I want to come back to it. Why did Dostoevsky give so much time to these three escapades, Dmitri trying to get this money, and then take us to the father's house and leave us where he does, because it's at that point that the narrative shifts to Gregory, and then from there, um, it's going to shift to um, Dmitri on the way to the tavern, and it shifts also to um, that friend of his, um, what, what's his name? The um, Sorry, um, um, Percotin, Percotin. He's the official um, who's a friend of Demetrius's, but also an official. And when Dimitri um, returns to his house to get the guns, he's got blood all over his clothes. He's got money um, in wads, and he just had um, pawned his pistols. So when Dmitri comes back, he has all this money, he has blood on his clothes, he gets his pistols, and then he takes off for Grushenka. Okay? Um, and then Perkotin is so concerned by what he sees that he goes to see Fenya, Grushenka's um, servant, and finds out what had happened, and goes to the woman um, to see if she lent him Dmitri money, and, and she says no. So he assumes then that um, Dmitri killed his father. And he goes to the police department and finds out that um, the father's dead. The death is reported. Okay. Now, very, very quickly, you know that we go to the tavern and that what I called last week a bacchanal takes place. Um, Dmitri confronts the Poles. He locks them up. Um, Grushenka is taken with his courage and, and for the first time in 10 years she sees how foolish she's been, truly foolish. She's an extraordinary woman. She asks forgiveness. She asks pardon for her sins. She declares her love for him. He declares his love for her. He even thinks for a moment of taking his life. Even then he goes into a corner because he was ready to do that and changes his mind. So it's a crisis for the two of them. She was going to go off with his lover even though she hated him and she realizes her mistake. Dimitri's going to take his life. He stops. For the first time in the life of the two of them, they, they stand in humility before each other. She asks pardon for her sins. He declares her love, and they start drinking wild. Well, they've been drinking for some time too, but there's this Bacchanal scene, and, and as they go through it, they get warmer and warmer and more openly tender with each other. And it's right when um, she starts to fall asleep and she has this dream of Dimitri off with her in the snow 
but she wakes up and looks past him and sees the interrogating officers behind him. So right at a moment when the two of them could have consummated the love and taken off, they could have taken off. The police catch them, and it's at that point that Dimitri's accused of parasite, killing his father. Okay. Now, a couple of things, um, and, and, and then I want to get to the crux of this tonight. Um, part three, book eight, cha sorry, chapter eight. The very last chapter of the Dimitri section ends with Dmitri and Grushenka in each other's arms and the policeman coming in. I want everybody to hold the narrative together because this goes to a narrative question. After this long section on Dmitri and all of his escapades, he and Grushenka together, embracing, tender, and the police come in. And then there's a shift and we go back to Perkinton again and we find out what he did trying to follow up these clues, these concerns, and it finally takes him to the police department and he discovers that uh, Fyodor Karamazov was killed, and the police know about it. So it's from that point that we jump back to Dmitri and the interrogation begins. Is that clear? There are two time shifts. Right after Dmitri, or right while Dmitri and Grushenko are declaring their love, the police come in, we get a break, we go back to Perkinton and the investigations that he's making, we discover that Fyodor Kermanzov is dead. The last time we saw Dmitri at his father's, he was looking into the window, loathing his father, wanting to kill him, taking the pestle out of his pocket as if he intended to kill him. And, and in the next scenes we see blood and all this money that he'd not have before. Now we go back to the interrogation and the interrogation begins. Is everybody clear on, on the time shifts? Because I'm going to ask in a minute, why did Dostoevsky do that, those two time shifts? But before I do, I want to get to the crux of this because it seems to me it's all going to this. At this point, when the interrogation begins, um, as soon as the interrogating officer um, accuses him, Dimitri's first assumption is that he's accusing him of the murder of Grigory. Do you remember? He's, he admits it willingly. He thinks he's, and he's going to openly confess it. And then the officer says, um, not understanding, you're, you're being accused of parasite. And, the, and the, the immediate tendency is to condemn him because they're convinced he killed his father. And these are the ones, these are the experts, they're the ones who presumably know everything. One of the officers even says, that's exactly what, when, when he starts explaining what he did, the officer said, that's exactly what a desperate man has. So all of these men are in theories, they're living what they got out of law school, and they're bringing it to the way they look at Dimitri and begin the act of interrogation. Okay, so let me stop at this point. I'm going to ask you guys, Give me the evidence at this point that seems to confirm that Dimitri is the killer of his father. Can we start, can we make a list here? Because what's going to happen as we move through the interrogation is the evidence is simply going to build up against him. And I, if any of you have read the novel, do not give it away. Do not go there. We have to go through this section because all of it makes it clear that Dmitri murdered his father. So what's the evidence in support of that? 
that he's in fact the murderer of his father. Can you remember anything? Where are you guys now? What do you remember? Say again, Mark. Start. The bloody rag. The bloody rags. Good. Uh, and I may be mistaken, but the the, the object, the blood force trauma object. The pistol. Yeah. Uh, yeah, pestle, yeah, pestle. And wait, because he threw it off in the garden, but they also knew that he picked it up from the woman's house. Right. So yeah, go ahead. Well, so the, there's no reason to do that other than he just did something really, really bad. Yeah. Well, he assumes he assumed that Grigor is dead. Mm -hmm. and, and as a matter of fact, he was carrying that on his conscience with Grishenka that he was going to have to live with this murder and he was going to have to tell her just when they were opening up to each other. So, any anything else? Do you guys remember anything else? The money. Yeah, right. Money. Right. And, and right. I think what we what we saw through the the discourse of, of Dimitri's various activities up to the point where he went to the tavern, he he had both motive and opportunity, and the uh, the conflict he had with his father over Shika. So I think what. Dostoevsky took us through with all of that was building the case that the police ultimately presented to him. Right. And right. And questioning that the, the police were basically trying to get him to confess to having done everything in that sequence of events. Because they're convinced he's guilty. But did Dostoevsky do that to let the reader see how easy it is to come to that conclusion? set up the reader to believe it, you know, he was guilty too. Well, when he got off the, he actually got off the fence to go see if he could help Gregory. And then he left, so he assumed later he had killed him. Yeah. Carl, yeah. Carl, hold off on that, just because you're, you're already going to the end where I want to, but, <laughs> I mean, you sort of, but hold off on that, will you, because. I thought we said it was set up when I was reading it. Did you? Yeah. Oh, good for you. Good for you. Any other before we get there? Any other evidence? I just want to. I want to get as much evidence as we can out. Thank you, lost Bob. Can you hear me? Did you guys not hear me? No. Oh. I was just, I was just, no, I was, I was, I was just glad for Carl because he was, he, he was going where I want to go, but I didn't want to get there quite so fast. Before we get there, because I think Carl was right on, I just want to get all the evidence out. Any other evidence? Can you, are you? Well, he had blood on his clothes as well, right? What? He had blood on his clothes. Right, right, right. 
Yeah. Yeah, I've got your audio. Yeah. I, my video's gone. Well, you, but you're, we're still there. So we're, you're good. You're good. Let me, let me offer a couple of more things here. Let me try to go through. Immediately when the police come in and question, Grushenka, Grushenka says, <laughs> this is the first thing. She says, I drove him to it. This is extraordinary because she's, she's reached a point in her life, she's doing what Zosima said. If you don't stand with another person within your own sins, you're in no place to judge that person. By the way, that's Christ. That's Christ speaking. Her first response is to say, I drove him to it. It's my fault. Because she, she knows she played those men. That's what she's been doing for the last part of her life. She's been playing men. She tormented them. She teased them. She played them. She did it with um, Dimitri, she did it with um, Samsonov, she did it with other men. She did it with Dimitri. Um, she did it with Alexei. She what? She did it with Alexei. Yeah, um, right, right, good. But the first words are, I drove him to it, which is a confirmation that he's the killer. Dimitri confesses to killing the old man. He calls Grigory the old man because he's always looked at Grigory as his father. So there's another confusion, taking him as his father. He says that when he left the woman's house, um, Koklakov's, he said, I want to kill somebody. Um, he's got his um, facts wrong about the gate. Um, and he acknowledges when he went to the father's house, he looked in and said he wanted to kill him. He said to a number of people in town with people present um, um, that he was um, going to kill him. As he's being interrogated and he listens to the facts, he, it suddenly occurs to him, given the facts as they're presented, there's only two people who would have been there that night, right? One is himself and the other is Smirchkov. And he has, he just is beyond his comprehension to think that Smerchikov could have killed his father. So he eliminates him, and his conclusion is, um, I, can't, I can't imagine anybody else doing it but me. So think about the difference between Dmitri and that stranger who kept appearing to Alyosha, remember, who did everything he could to cover it up. Dmitri keeps speaking in this innocence um, with no sense of, um, putting on airs or trying to falsify things. He, he's always completely open. They find the money on him. Finally, when they undress him, the money doesn't square. He's got 1,500, 1500 rubles in that package, in that little thing he's wearing. But everybody testifying said that when he had that first bash with um, Grushenka, he spent 3,000 rubles. When he had not, that is, they all misperceived that. And they were convinced that he spent $3,000 this time when he did not. So everybody involved in this is giving incriminating evidence. It's not just the inspectors. It's not just those close to him. It's townspeople, everybody at the tavern. Um, Right, right, right. He didn't right. have the mental capacity. Right, right. And of course, that was wrong. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, let me let me go let me go to the question um, that I asked a, some minutes ago. Carl's already gone to it, and maybe nothing more needs to be said. There are these two time shifts. One of them occurs when we're following Dmitri, and he go after Grushenka, and he goes to his father's house, wondering if he'll find her there. He looks in and sees his father and feels this contempt rising up and he grabs the pestle and there's a break. Um, and then we pick up Perkerton who's doing all these investigating and, and what happens from that point on is we've got all this evidence that makes it seem fairly clear that, um, that Dimitri killed his father. Why did, why did um, Dostoevsky, the narrator, present things in that manner. Is that clear? Maybe Carl's already answered it. I'm not sure if everybody's... Um... Well, I, I think Carl said it. I think Dostoevsky is going to convince us that he did it. Sorry? He also is looking up the trial, isn't he? Because that's exactly what the... Um, prosecution did, and followed it right along in the same manner, right. the same points. Yeah. So we got introduced to it when we got suckered in, and of course the, the prosecution, the prosecuting attorney then used it to state his case. Carl, go back to the question, why, why is he doing, what, why does Dostoevsky do it this way? What, what's the effect on us? Just the investigators? Doesn't it point out the shortcoming of that kind of investigation where you really only have that circumstantial evidence to accuse with, but you also only have that to convict with? Yeah, but it, is it just limited to the, the officials involved in this? It's easy to, to convince people of something that isn't right making it look right. Yeah, is everybody clear in that? Uh, to me, it's it's it, I, it's to me it's extraordinary. He he, it, it's like um, it's like Walter in Griselda story, where there's all this evidence that he seems to be this kind of person, and you can jump to a conclusion, but we know that isn't what was going on. He's presented all of this stuff in such a way that and it look. Keep the, keep the official functionaries out of it for a minute. Everybody in town, all of his friends, even Grushenka. There wasn't anybody in that group, the whole town, that didn't think he didn't kill him. Everybody was convinced that he killed him. So what Dostoevsky is showing how quick people are to go to judgments, whether they're ignorant or whether they're educated. That they're attempting to read the soul. This goes back to that opening debate between Ivan and the other priests in Zosima. You know, that there's this quickness in our pride to make these judgments about other people. And what he's doing is setting us up because if we, if we go back to Zosima's words, he, remember he said, I read the words, unless you can stand with another person in his sins, you have no business making a judgment about him. Dostoevsky is, <laughs> he, he has so set this up. I mean, what, because I can see, we can, 
evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence and every every time we're going he's guilty he's guilty he's guilty he's guilty and the irony is we've been what we've gotten into the inside of this man from the beginning of the story remember in the first meeting with Alyosha when he said I'm a I'm an insect he shows us the innermost heart we know this man is a good man he wants to pay this money back to Katrina um, he wants to love I mean he reaches a point of despair this is his real crisis but we've seen this man from the inside and now we've got all this evidence and Dostoevsky's making it easier for us to, to make judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment and come out of it thinking this guy's killed his dad. So in some ways it seems to me what Dostoevsky is doing is helping us to reach a point of... I don't, wait, Marcy, wait. Wait, yeah, it's uh oh. We hold on. He's make he he's make. I don't know how to put this. He's making it hard for us not to condemn ourselves because we we've been encouraged moment after moment after mo to justify our own judgments, thinking we're right, and we're going to reach a point finally of realizing. With respect to every one of those things, we were wrong. We had it all wrong. And to go to Carl's point, what's really interesting to me, to mean we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, when we get into the trial scene, we're going to watch two very educated men, very educated men using their powers of reason, ed, an educated reason, to prove his guilt and innocence. And both of them are wrong. So what is Dostoevsky showing us about the human heart and the human intellect in in this stage of the the story. Well, I don't know about the heart and intellect, but I think he's also pointing out um, the shortcoming in either the legal system or the approach used in the rest of the court at that time. The, the fact of the matter is, all of the defense attorney did was try to discredit what the prosecuting attorney was bringing in. I, I fault him for not trying to bring a case that would have or could have or might have saved with views. Yeah. I remember reading anything that he really tried to build that case. He was, he was playing defense. Doc, what do you say about this? Yeah, but everything, but all the evidence against him was basically circumstantial in the first place. So, I mean, you know, the whole thing was bad. Yes, you want to condemn him, yeah. but at the end of the day, it's a reason. Now, granted, this is forethought of 200 years of, you know, time passing from when this was written, right? To be able to, or 150, to be able to sit back and say, looking at this evidence, you can't convict him even if you think he's guilty. Because it's just the evidence isn't there. Yeah. So a lot of you say there's a lot of circumstance, but there's no hard evidence. One way or another. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it points out a fundamental fallacy of human nature. Yeah. I, I think you see in spades today. When when a storyline begins, people are more likely to just join in on that storyline. Yes. Climb on climb on the wagon that everybody <laughs> else is on. Yes. Yes. Long ride. Yep. And I mean, that's one of the things that a 
kill in this country today. I couldn't agree more. It just boggles my mind how people don't spend, and, and particularly today, I mean, you have so much information available to you at your fingertips, and you can go out and do your own research, do your own study, and draw your own conclusions. And you can find that half the time, the people that are absolutely convinced they are right couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> no, yes. And what we what we see today yes. is, you know, people just too ready. You, you see something on the media, and you get your emotions all worked up, and you're ready to raise your hand and say, "I'm in," as opposed to taking the time to make your own decision about whether you think that is a realistic explanation or not. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more, um, Fred. I think to add to it, too, if, in terms of the whole of the book, if we're staying just in the book, that one of the things um, where Dostoevsky is asking us to hold on to is what Christ said and what Zosim is saying um, with Christ, if I can put it that way. That Because Christ, by the way, Christ was condemned that's God. I mean, that's how that's how far bad it can go. That people are so um, they don't see how selfish they are, and we don't see how selfish we are in the judgments that we make. And I think Zosimov is the is one of the figures closest to Christ. Alyosha will be too. But when Zosimov says, "Unless you can stand with everybody for everybody," because Christ crucifixion on the cross was for all of us. If you can't stand there or won't stand there because you're too proud in your mind or too, it's not just the heart, if you're too proud in your intellect or you're, or you're too given to your emotions, your passions, um, if you can't stand that way, what he's showing us, the likelihood is you won't judge a person well. Let me put this differently. I mean, we've been talking about this where so many, so many of the works we've been looking at if we don't learn, if we don't learn to love well, if we don't learn to love well, um, we see again and again how often our judgments miss something. We're too quick to make judgments and not see what we don't see. And we, you know, I've been talking about this theme of reading from the beginning that we don't read well. We're just too quick to, we don't see well. If we don't stand with Christ, there's a lot we will miss, and. So much of the story has been showing that scene after scene after scene after scene, and it's particularly true here in the interrogation because when you get through all of that evidence, Dostoevsky is making it really hard for us not to believe that Dmitri's guilty, but he's not. And we'll learn eventually um, that he's not. I mean, Smerdyakov will confess. Let me just, I'm going to raise a question here and then just call it a night if, if I can. Um, I'm, I'll send this out next week. If all of you remember the circle that I used to draw on the board of the plate, the Platonic soul, do you remember with reason and the or the reason and spiritedness and the appetites? I'm going to do this again. Do you all remember that? Draw a circle, an egg-shaped circle, and divide it into three parts. Um, the top is reason. The middle is spiritedness or anger, thumos anger. Remember, anger is the rectifying. It's the one we call in to, to answer a threat. Wrath is a sin. Anger's not. So reason, 
spiritedness, and the appetites. Remember? If I asked all of you to draw that diagram and identify each of the major characters with a part, the head, the heart, the appetites, where would you put them? First question, okay? First question. And the other is, um, what's the other? God, where would you put them? Oh, um, yeah, where would you put them? In, in Plato, the head rules the appetite. Remember the chariot figure, the charioteers ruling the two horses, the white horse and the black horse? The, the white horse was the spiritedness, the, the good desires for nobility and beauty, the, the transcendent virtues, truth, beauty, those things. The white horse was the desire for those. The black horse was an image of the appetites, physical things, food, drink. Um, so the chariot controls those two things. And the white horse helps control the black horse. So for, for Plato, the intellect rules the appetites, the desires for physical things, through that middle element. Do you remember? The intellect rules the appetites through that middle element. Is everybody okay? C.S. Lewis would go farther in, in Abolition of Man. He says, um, the intellect rules the appetites through that part that makes man most man. Because in his intellect, he's angelic. In his appetites, he's a beast. So we stand between two creatures in creation. Between those angels that, that have no bodies. They're just all pure intellect. That's what angels are. Or beasts. What makes us human is that, that center element. The desire for truth beauty, goodness. It's the longing for those, the, the readiness to get angry when those are threatened that, that helps us order our souls. So that's Plato. If you drew it for Dostoevsky and you identified each of the characters, Ivan, Dmitri, Alyosha, Smerdyakov, Fyodor, where would you put them? And would, would Dostoevsky agree with Plato or not? That's the first question that I just want to ask, looking ahead to next week, because we're going to start moving towards the end. But the other is this. When we leave the interrogation, at the end of the interrogation, you know that Dmitri's taken off to jail. He has a moment when he can kiss Krushenka goodbye, and he's taken off to jail. And, and then we'll get the, uh, the scene with the boys, and then the actual courtroom scene. Um, but before we get to that, we have these exchanges between, involving um, Ivan with Smerdyakov and Ivan with the devil. And in both of those, we're dealing with the intellect. Ivan thinks he's really bright. He, he is. I mean, he's an extraordinary, intelligent man. Everybody looks at Smerdyakov as if Smerdyakov is this idiot. But Smerdyakov, in some ways, outthought Ivan. I mean, he saw things Ivan didn't. He knew things about Ivan that didn't know about himself. And then Ivan is going to have these meetings with the devil, a, pure, a, a, a creature of pure intellect. And we're going to watch Ivan struggle with his mind and see this devil outthink him everywhere. I mean, if you put man next to a demon, a, pure, a, a creature of pure intellect, it's like putting a rookie up against a veteran of 100 years. 
I mean, there's no comparison. This devil makes Ivan look like a child, intellectually. So what is Dostoevsky saying about the human intellect in the modern world? With the advent of sciences, with all these people who think they have answers, um, that if you only create the, all these Enlightenment ideas, remember, they're all introduced into Russia. All these in, they're, they're from the Enlightenment. We can produce a better judiciary system. We can produce better human beings. Um, we can make a better world. We can make a utopian world. That's the Soviet Union. What is Dostoevsky showing us about the human intellect in the modern world? In some ways, I'm going to go out on a limb here. When I, when I think about Brothers Karamazov and what's going on in Brothers, the way these enlightenment, modern, scientific ideas, the influence they've had on a world, and I look at America today, it's hard for me to read Brothers and not see America. That we're, we're, we're only a couple of hundred years... Our founding was religious. Our founding was religious. Um, whatever's going on in the rest of the world, we're given to a volatility you don't find in Europe because our founding was religious. We're going through a crisis right now. I, I can't watch what's going on without thinking Dostoevsky was 100 years ahead of his time describing us because we've got utopian ideas that have been at work for the last 100 years. They're reaching a pitch and we're in the middle of a crisis between an old way of doing things and these modern, more utopian ways. So, when you think about what's going on in the next section with um, Dmitri and, or sorry, with Ivan and Smirnikov and um, Ivan and the angel, read really carefully, read it really closely. What do we learn about the human intellect from those scenes? Okay? Um, because we're, because remember I said, Zosimov, Alyosha, the beginning of a crisis with Dmitri. But the beginning of that crisis with Dmitri was going to extend through the rest of the novel. So when we hit the middle of the novel, we began a descent into demonic things. Now we're looking at something close to pure evil with everything that Smerdjikov did and whatever the angel, whether the angels are at work in, or the demons, pardon me, whether the demons are at work in what's going on or not. Let me just leave you with those questions, okay? Looking forward. That's where we're going next week. Some heavy reading. I hope you guys, if you haven't read it, I hope you will, because they're, they're hard to read. I mean, they're so intellectually fine. God. Anyway, um, let's, any, without going there, any comments or questions about this before we stop for the night? We've got to figure out some kind of food wine service. For you guys to be eating dinner when the rest of us are not, or drinking wine when the rest of us are not, something's got to be done here about these inequalities. All I can say is pop a cork. <laughs> what did he say? Pop a cork. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying, I hope you're enjoying Dostoevsky. It's a rare, it's an extraordinary book. It, it, it's such a window on America today in lots of ways. Truly, truly, just an extraordinary book. Okay, it's a genuine pleasure to see you all, genuine 
pleasure to see you all. Um, you guys have a good week. Stay safe, okay? Um, hey, I have a request. Sure. When it's getting later in the evening and people use outside daylight, you know, on these calls, it gets dark out there and I can't see the faces of people who don't have some additional lighting. Turn the light on. That's the plan. <laughs> What's the plan? Not to be able to see them. Sometimes seeing people's face, the patient's expression, you know, makes their words you know, more powerful. Wait, I'm, I hope... I hope. So you're asking everybody to turn lights on because some of you are in dark? You all are coming through pretty clear. The only one that's dark is Fred, but he's that way always. <laughs> Wait, Doc has something to say. No, I don't. Oh. I just wanted to say. You guys stay safe. Stay safe. Yeah, I'm going to, I mean, I just don't want to go on, Doc. I, it's too many pitch questions, and I want to leave everybody there. I really want, um, I don't want to drag this out, and I want to be really careful here. And I tried to leave it at a point where everybody would be interested. I don't know about this setup. God. But you're still leaning forward, so stay back. I know, I know. I'm not sure. I can't, I just can't not see her though.